You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. We now commence with Understanding God's Righteousness, episode 33. This episode is called The Forgiveness Rituals Change. Why? Why does God change the sin forgiveness ritual from animal altar offerings repeated frequently during the First Kingdom Age to a baptismal ritual performed only once in the Ecclesial Age and then back to a repeated animal altar offering in the uh, Millennial Kingdom Age? What is God trying to teach us? The divine principle we are currently addressing is forgiveness. This is highly significant to us. Unlike our Messiah, our salvation is dependent on this principle of forgiveness. Thankfully, the Creator determined in the very beginning that it would not be good for man to be alone. If forgiveness were not offered by God, Jesus would be all alone in creation upon the completion of God's plan with that last stage of the elimination of death. On the basis of forgiveness, the faithful enlightened have at least an opportunity to participate in the salvation process and serve as the bride of the Son of God. But with all divine testimony, God communicates with intentional complexity. Easy answers are always the wrong answers. Those quick, instinctive, heart-generated presumptions are the darkness and not the light. We've learned there are conditions for forgiveness and that forgiveness is not automatic simply because we've been baptized into the truth or simply because we even repent and ask for forgiveness. First, an understanding of God's truths is required for God's forgiveness. Secondly, repentance is required. And thirdly, our own forgiveness of others who have wronged us is required for our own forgiveness from God. We've learned there are two sins for which God withholds forgiveness. The presumptuous sin and blasphemy of the Holy Spirit are both repeatedly defined in Scripture as unforgivable. Although blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not a sin we can be guilty of at this time in God's plan. Thankfully, our previous forgiveness issue we addressed was about the heart-generated presumption that if we've not forgiven, or I'm sorry, not forgotten a trespass, then we have not truly forgiven that trespass. We determined that was a completely false understanding that's rather disrespectful of God, since he truly forgives, but he certainly does not forget, and there are degrees of forgiveness as with David for his horrible sins of adultery and contract murder. We concluded the last class with the next question to address, another one of those why questions that divine motivation and not procedure. This is the question about forgiveness that we'll be addressing now. Why did God change the ritual forgiveness procedure 
so dramatically from the First Kingdom Age to the Ecclesial Age and will then shift it back to the model from the First Kingdom Age when that kingdom is restored under Jesus Christ. The easy answer may be that Jesus fulfilled the law. He lived a life of perfect obedience. He not only did not sin, but did demonstrate God's righteousness his entire life. He condemned sin in that violent death, validating his father's righteousness and demanding death due to that introduction of sin into that previously very good creative order. If we presume death was part of those originally very good creation components and order, and if we presume any degree of physical uncleanness could have been part of that precursor divinely very good order, then we completely eliminate the purpose and value of our Messiah's sacrificial death. If death and uncleanness could actually be components of what God declares to be very good, then the introduction of sin into creation would have meant nothing, and God's judgment of death for sin would have been meaningless, and therefore the death of Jesus would not have validated God's righteousness in requiring death for sin in that judgment in Eden. Understanding that death did not precede sin is crucial to understanding why Jesus had to die and why we are commanded to be baptized into his death. The altar sin offering from the previous divine dispensation served as a shadow template for the substance, which was the sacrificial death of Jesus. The problem with this easy answer of Christ fulfilling the law is that the educational value in the laws and rituals of that first kingdom age have obviously not been exhausted. Those laws and rituals will be restored when God's kingdom is restored by Jesus Christ. We read of the prophecies of the millennial kingdom uh, in Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48. And this immediately follows the Armageddon prophecy in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39, which again immediately follows the dry bones prophecy in chapter 37 about the political and then the spiritual resurrections of the nation of Israel. Ezekiel prophesies of the fourth divine sanctuary, that third temple at Jerusalem, that Jesus will build. Ezekiel prophesies of the altar and the altar sacrifices that will include the burnt offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, the meal, and the drink offering. Ezekiel also tells us that Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Feast of Tabernacles will be observed again in the Millennial Kingdom globally. Ezekiel tells us about the priests that will serve the temple and educate the people in spiritual matters. We read that Sabbath observance and circumcision will be required again. We also read in Zechariah 14 how everyone in the world will be required to come to Jerusalem every single year for the Feast of Tabernacles under threat of famine and possibly plague for noncompliance. Isaiah 42 is a prophecy about the Millennial Kingdom. We read of how God's servant will bring judgment to the Gentiles 
and how the nations will wait upon his law. It tells us how the Messiah will be a light to the Gentiles and open the blind eyes. This is also the chapter that defines how God will end his long self-imposed silence by roaring like a charging soldier and crying out like a birthing mother. But then, in verse 21, we read this. The Lord is well pleased for his righteousness sake. He will magnify the law and make it honorable. In the context of this millennial kingdom prophecy, we read that God will magnify the law for his righteousness sake. The law to which Isaiah was referencing was the same law of the kingdom of God that Isaiah and the enlightened community were operating under when Isaiah prophesied. First, let's recognize the why answer that's provided here. Why is Yahweh going to magnify the law in the millennial kingdom? The answer is stated very clearly. If we're willing to hear with hearing ears, it's the very theme of our considerations. Yahweh will magnify the law and make it honorable for his righteousness sake. Now this is the very foundational purpose of the resurrection to judgment. The issue that determines the full extent of defining who will be required to attend Christ's judgment is not a consideration of who will be saved and who won't. God is going to raise a number of people for judgment that do not stand any chance of salvation in any way whatsoever, such as the Sanhedrin, who Jesus declared would personally witness him in his glory as they were condemning him, and the Roman soldiers who pierced his body at five points during his crucifixion before and after his death, as, as we read, they will actually witness his glory in Revelation. The, they, the, excuse me, uh, the primary issue in determining who will be raised for Christ's judgment is the vindication of God's righteousness. The same reason for why God will restore kingdom law, magnify that kingdom law, and make it honorable. There will be many raised for the judgment who God already knows are going to be rejected, but he still demands their resurrected presence at the judgment. God's righteousness will have to be vindicated. This is the same exact reason why the laws of the first kingdom age will be restored, along with the basic but somewhat modified kingdom structure. God will restore and magnify that law and make it honorable for his righteousness sake. This is our theme, the theme of our considering, our continuing considerations. Understanding that righteousness that will be vindicated in the judgment process by Christ and the angels, understanding that righteousness that demands that shift in the forgiveness ritual model from baptism back to an animal offering burned on an altar in front of that fourth and final divine sanctuary, but of course, only the third temple at Jerusalem, those laws of the kingdom of God 
that are so often disparaged in our current lukewarm generation of the enlightened community serve as magnifying lessons for witnessing the righteousness, the rightness of our Creator, what everything is all about. I mean, as, as John tells us, the absence of righteousness defines the presence of sin. Those laws, what are often referred to as the laws of Moses, as if they really aren't God's laws, that they were just the laws of Moses. I mean, Moses only delivered God's law and served as the police commissioner and the judge who enforced those laws. Those laws and rituals of the kingdom of God highlighted God's righteousness, just like the laws and rituals of the ecclesial age. The laws and rituals are temporary in both ages, but the principles they have and are demonstrating are eternal. Like David, who could not build the temple, we are certainly not permitted to serve as temple priests at this time. Our current priesthood is far more restrictive. But that's the job we want, to be appointed as the immortal king priests of the restored kingdom of God. This is a kingdom that will not be managed by the angels, but by Christ and the saints. We read this in Hebrews 2. For unto the angels has he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak? Well, if we're going to be those saints educating and judging the world in the kingdom, we're going to have to be intimately familiar with the laws of that kingdom. Why would we not be intensely training for that position right now? But intensity is not how Jesus describes our exact last generation of the enlightened community. Actually, he uses terms that indicate exactly the opposite meaning. Paul does the same, prophesying how the enlightened community in the very last days will be lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. That we as a community will demonstrate a form of godliness, but we will deny the power thereof. So the point is that many of the original laws and rituals of the kingdom of God that included the animal sin offerings will be restored when the kingdom is restored by an immortal Christ and his saints, his king priests. Therefore, those within our community who dismiss what they call the law of Moses as being inconsequential to us are entirely wrong. Actually, they are deadly wrong. While we are certainly not required to observe Sabbath law or circumcision law, feast weeks, these issues do declare the righteousness of God, which is exactly why that law will be restored in the kingdom that we hope to inherit and why God will magnify his law and make it honorable. But our question is about why God made this dramatic shift from the often repeated six sin offerings for forgiving transgressional sin, and of course the six sin offerings for cleansing from a divinely unclean physical condition, or just the one time to, to just that one time baptism ritual of the ecclesial age. And then 
then shifting again, again back to that previous forgiveness model when God's kingdom is restored and expanded to include our entire planet. A definitive answer will take some stages in our reasoning. First, let's remember the most significant first principle of all the first principles of God's righteousness. This is the principle of God manifestation. How God manifests or reveals himself through so many avenues, such as the angels and Jesus Christ, his written testimony, meaning the Bible, his spoken testimony, of course, meaning creation, and also the faithful, enlightened men and women like Moses and Joshua and David and Isaiah and Ezekiel, um, Mary, the mother of Jesus, the apostles, and hopefully it will be said with you and I. The principle of God manifestation is one almighty God who manifests himself through many who all demonstrate that one singular focus of God's righteousness. God manifestation is a multitudinous singularity. This is why Jesus identifies the greatest of all commandments to be, Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. He quotes this from Deuteronomy 6 and verse, verses 4 and 5. And literally, that phrase reads, Hear, O Israel, he who shall be your mighty ones is he who shall be one. And you shall love he who shall be your mighty ones with all your heart, all your strength, all your might, all your life. Jesus adds the distinction of the mind to love God with all our mind in his quote of this greatest of all commandments in Mark 12. So, Jesus includes this prefacing statement as being a component of the first and greatest of all his Father's commandments, that God will become many, who will all be one, a multitudinous singularity, the portrait of harmony, like the design of the human body like the ecological integrity of our planet, like the divinely appointed institution of the family, one man who takes a wife, and those two become one, and they produce children, but all share the father's name and that status of a single family. This is why we're baptized into that single family name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, just as Jesus commanded. It is this comprehensiveness, this harmony of all components that demonstrates the principle of God manifestation. And this is the first principle that separates the enlightened community from all other religions of the world, no matter who or what they claim to worship, and particularly distinguishes us from the paganized Christianity who mistakes that multitudinous singularity for the blasphemous doctrine of the Trinity. So we begin our answer as to why God imposes this forgiveness ritual shift from an animal sacrifice to baptism and then back to an animal sacrifice 
and recognizing we absolutely have to address this question in a comprehensive framework, respecting the foundational principle of harmony, of multitudinous singularity in all of God's testimony across the full extent of his plan from that first day of creation through to the elimination of death in that eighth millennium from that creation day. Therefore, we are not free to dismiss the laws and rituals of the previous or the next divine dispensation as if they're inconsequential to us, as if we can somehow be comfortable declaring that we are not under the laws of God, uh, under God's laws that are identified with Moses, perhaps suggesting God eliminated those laws and that they're not meaningful to our considerations about God's righteousness. The first great apostasy clearly demonstrated in the transition into the ecclesial age was the refusal of the enlightened community to abandon the laws and rituals of the first kingdom age. We should not make the same serious mistake in reverse by going to the opposite extreme, refusing to respect God's plan to restore most of those laws and rituals from that first kingdom in place of the laws and rituals of the ecclesial age. So our next stage in addressing this question about the forgiveness template transition will be to examine how those kingdom laws demonstrated this foundational principle of God manifestation, multitudinous singularity. We have to remember that God's kingdom law will be restored, magnified, and made honorable for the sake of God's righteousness. That forgiveness ritual template will change back from baptism to bloody altar offerings for the sake of God's righteousness, his rightness. The issue of comprehensiveness and harmony can be seen in how the various laws and rituals and religious components of that first kingdom age were defined by all the other indirectly related components of that law structure. Now, a simple example of this would be how the bronze altar in the courtyard of the tabernacle, which is identified directly with Jesus Christ, was identified as the altar of burnt offering. Now, there were six different altar offering categories. The burnt offering was one, the peace offering, the sin offering, the trespass offering, the meal, meaning the grain, uh, flour, unleavened bread offering, and the drink offering, which was wine. But that altar was defined by just one of those offering categories, the burnt offering. So the sin offering was consumed on the altar of burnt offering. There were no separate altar for that sin offering, no altar of sin offering, just the altar of burnt offering. One altar upon which all categories of offerings were consumed in the same flames to project God's righteousness. One altar, many separate offerings, consumed in one eternal flame, a fire that God demanded should never be allowed to extinguish. Now, that's a fairly simple demonstration of this first principle 
of multitudinous singularity, but this is an endless theme in scripture. We repeatedly told how the placement of that bronze Christ altar of burnt offering was supposed to be identified with specifically the door of the tabernacle. And we're told this over and over and over and over. A repetition, redundancy, is one of those expression tools that God uses to emphasize significance. Let's just look at a few of the examples. Leviticus 1 and 5. And he shall kill the bullock before the Lord and the priests. Aaron's son shall bring the blood and sprinkle the blood round about upon the altar that is by the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. Leviticus 4. And he shall pour all the blood of the bullock at the bottom of the altar of the burnt offering, which is at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. Verse 18 in Leviticus 4, And he shall pour out all the blood at the bottom of the altar of the burnt offering, which is at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And going to Leviticus 17, we read, uh, And the priest shall sprinkle the blood upon the altar of the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. Now let's just stop there and consider this repeatedly emphasized point of reference. Do we really think that God presumed the priests might have some kind of problem locating that large bronze altar, or that they might possibly mistake it for the golden altar of incense inside the holy chamber of the tabernacle. Why couldn't God identify the bronze altar as simply eh, the altar in the courtyard, or the altar by the bronze labor? But God very redundantly defines the location of the bronze Christ altar as by specifically the door of their tabernacle. Now, one of the tools we've emphasized in these considerations about understanding God's righteousness is to respect this divine use of surgical redundancy. Redundant expressions are most often dismissed by commentators as, as superfluous and unnecessary expressions. It's already been said. And this is one of the ways God hides the beauty and glory of his testimony, how he manifests himself so invisibly to those without seeing eyes and hearing ears while simultaneously revealing himself to those with circumcised hearts. One of the ways he, he does this is to use forms of expression that are instinctively disrespected and yet hide great truths and glory. It is this cross-identification of all the components and procedures of those kingdom laws that demonstrate this principle of multitudinous singularity, that foundational divine principle, that everything is interconnected and interdependent. Let's consider the directions God offers for the components of the sin offering, which of course was that forgiveness offering that we're asking about, the one that shifted to the singularly uh, observed baptism ritual in the ecclesial age, but again will be restored in the restored kingdom age um, and will be repeated over and over and over. The directions of the sin offering for the high priest and the nation is defined by how those animal components to be burned on that altar uh, of burnt offering that's by the door of the tabernacle should be understood in their relation to sacrific the sacrificial components 
of the peace offering. Notice how in Leviticus 4, uh, in reference to the details of the sin offering for the high priest and the nation, as it was taken off from the bullock of the sacrifice of peace offerings, and the priest shall burn them upon the altar of the burnt offering. Despite the fact that these are the directions for, the, for an offering for sin, Yahweh intentionally associates certain features of these directions uh, to the altar offerings where sin is not the particular focus, such as the peace offering and the burnt offering. The remaining carcass of this bullock sin offering was also commanded to be burned outside the camp in exactly the location where the ashes of the altar burnt offering were deposited. We read in Leviticus chapter 4, and the skin of the bullock and all his flesh, with his head, with his legs, with his inwards and his dung, even the whole bullock shall he carry forth without the camp unto a clean place where the ashes are poured out and burn him on the wood with fire where the ashes are poured out shall he be burnt. We've looked at this particular example of surgical redundancy before how God requires the entire calf carcass to be burned outside the camp, but actually emphasizes six separate components of that male calf carcass uh, left over from the sin offering. One, the skin, all his flesh, the head, the legs, the inwards, and dung. That surgical redundancy should be a spotlight for us. Current issue is noting the intentional cross-identification God uses with his laws and rituals. The carcass can't just be disposed of anywhere. It was not to be simply buried out of the way. It had to be burned. And it had to be burned in a very specific location where the ashes from the altar of burnt offering were dumped outside the camp. Our Heavenly Father is intentionally associating certain features of one ritual with other specific rituals, articles, and locations. Another of the endless list of examples available to us identifies a divinely emphasized timing issue. God demanded that the flames of the seven golden lamps inside the tabernacle were never to be allowed to extinguish. But he also instructed the priests exactly when they had to refuel those lamps. The golden lampstand had to be refueled specifically when the incense was burned on the golden incense altar that was also inside the holy chamber of the tabernacle. We read these directions in Exodus 30. And Aaron shall burn thereon sweet incense every morning when he dresses the lamps. He shall burn incense upon it. And when Aaron lights the lamps at even, he shall even burn incense upon it, a perpetual incense before Yahweh throughout your generations. These two rituals represent the behavioral patterns of enlightenment and prayer. They had to be bound together by design, divine design. God identifies lamp refueling with incense burning in this ritual timing requirement. This repeated 
timing condition for both rituals highlights how enlightenment and prayer cannot be individually isolated. As a principle, we should certainly find this relationship confirmed in other ways, and we certainly do. In Proverbs 28 and 9, um, we see this uh, presented in a rather chilling confirmation of this association. He that turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer shall be abomination. So if we refuse to listen to God by ignoring his law, by not doing our daily readings, not studying the word of God, paying no attention to uh, education, uh, Sunday school, Bible classes, it's not simply that he will ignore our prayers. It's far worse than that. Our prayers become an abomination to him. If we shut off God's instruction, if we don't refuel our lamps, if we allow our own golden lampstands to extinguish, and yet actually still expect attentive access to Yahweh in our prayers, then our hypocrisy condemns our prayers to a status of constituting an abomination to God. We cannot burn the incense without dressing the lamps. The same divine principle, the principles embrace together all divine laws, communications, rituals, priesthood ages, and features of creation. It's what, what I call the principle principle. <laughs> In other words, the most significant issue, which is God manifestation. We could actually go on for literally weeks in this context of demonstrating how the divine principle of God manifestation, multitudinous singularity, is expressed endlessly in God's kingdom laws and rituals of that previous dispensation. But this is, this is just a stare in our quest for an answer to why God so dramatically changes the forgiveness ritual structure and then changes it back. But we will make one more of these cross-identifications. And this one is very comprehensive. If we were to ask the question about what was the most iconic element in the entire camp of the enlightened community, the most iconic element in God's first sanctuary, the tabernacle, what one element would we suggest? Would that simply be the tabernacle itself or something within the tabernacle or, or above the tabernacle, which was the fire pillar by night, which would be a cloud by day? Would it perhaps be the golden Ark of the Covenant or simply the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant? The foundational point of reference in that divinely designed kingdom structure can be determined confidently by considering one primary word used for this cross-identification and harmony emphasis. It is the tiny word of, O-F. We need to pay particular attention to tiny words that God uses and does not use in his testimony about his righteousness. 
Uh, you may remember one of the issues previously highlighted in reference to the invariable divine communication policy of intentional complexity. It was recommended that a Bible student always pay particular attention to the word if and the word only. Now, the word if is a conditional term that eliminates a blanket application, like how uh, we're warned by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 in reference to um, underst or understandings of God's truth. It says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received, and wherein you stand, by which also you are saved, if, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you believed in vain. Yes, we are saved by the gospel, but that little word, if, presents a powerful condemnation to anyone abandoning gospel truths, as the Corinthian Ecclesia was doing in relation to the doctrine of resurrection, which is what that chapter is all about. The word only presents another danger, the danger of oversimplification, as in we only have to do this or only have to do that, which is a contradiction of the entire framework of God manifestation. The word only is often presumed in an expression, dramatically lowering the necessity to balance the terms of our Creator's righteousness. An obvious example would be Paul's declaration in Romans chapter 10, which he says, If you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and shall believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. <laughs> it is presumed that the word only should be understood in this expression, as if truth, baptism, hope, the fear of God, and the personal performance of God's righteousness are not also necessary components of salvation. It is this presumed only effect in the natural serpent thought process that prompts the fairly common dismissal of any significance of God's kingdom laws, those mosaic laws, in our considerations of a correct understanding of the terms of God's righteousness. Well, now our emphasis is on the tiny word of. In order to identify a very powerful cross-identification in God's kingdom laws and rituals, there were two sets of two scriptures upon which God wrote the words of the covenant, also defined scripturally as God's testimony. That covenant was the Ten Commandments, the terms of the covenant that God made with Israel at Sinai less than two months after leaving their Egyptian slavery behind. After agreeing to the covenant, God comes to them on the third day, down onto the burning Sinai mountain, and speaks the words of the covenant directly to all the congregation. These were the Ten Commandments. Similarly, we are anticipating the same experience in the fairly near future, as prophesied in this historical parable event. It will be after two complete days, on that third divine day, that third millennium since the Son of God was given 
as a covenant to the people in his sacrificial death, a little less uh, than two divine days ago at this point. It will be the year 2030 when the third divine day will begin. God will once again come down to speak with the enlightened community, but not through the angel of his presence, as he did at Sinai, but through his son. The timing will be the same on that third day, just after the end of two divine days. Similarly, Jesus will impose those same terms of the covenant, kingdom laws and rituals. Those he chooses among the enlightened community to inherit the kingdom will become immortal priests, like the physically flawless sons of the high priest under kingdom law. It is these stones, these covenant stones, this testimony that served as the point of identification for everything. Um, in Exodus 31 we read, And he gave unto Moses when he had made an end of communing with him upon Mount Sinai, two tables of testimony, tables of stone, written with the finger of God. Now the second set of covenant stones, those two tables of testimony, were deposited in the golden ark with the mercy seat, uh, below the mercy seat and below the cherubim. Therefore it became identified as the ark of the testimony. The ark whose point of significant identification was those two stones. The mercy seat is defined in reference to this uh, testimony, these stones of testimony. The tabernacle becomes the tabernacle of the testimony, the two stones. The incense and the incense altar and even the cloud over the tabernacle are all identified by relationship to these two stones of testimony through that word of. The rods of the family leaders to identify the high priest are recorded as lying all night before the testimony. Despite the fact that the stones of testimony were behind the veil and within the golden ark underneath the mercy seat, it was the stones of testimony that served as the common point of reference for the tabernacle, its contents, and the activities surrounding it. And this is appropriate, as these stones were prepared exclusively by Yahweh. His finger wrote the words of the testimony directly into the stone's four surfaces. Aholiab did not use his exceptional skills with any Israelite donations from their Egyptian spoils. The stones of testimony came directly from the Heavenly Father without further embellishment or artistry. They became the center of it all, just as the stone the builders rejected, the, the cornerstone, the stone of stumbling, the rock of offense, the stone cut out of the mountain without hands, has become the center of all things spiritual. Jesus Christ is the center of all things that blend together, uh, everything together, into a single harmony, despite having many separate components constituting that singularity, that multitudinous singularity, that harmony. 
We are not free to carve out any individual feature of Scripture and dispose of it as if it were inconsequential. Everything is bound together in Christ. We are not free to minimalize works and overemphasize grace. We're not free to ignore judgment and adore mercy. We're not free to pray incessantly without reading God's word incessantly. We are not free to embrace the siren song of simplicity because everything is interdependent in that oneness of Christ. If we ignore or minimize any one aspect of our divine relationship and responsibilities, we might as well cut off an arm or remove an eye or a lung. We will not be spiritually whole. Paul highlights this issue in his creation quote that the foot cannot say it's not part of the body because it's not a hand. If the whole body were an eye, where would, they, where would be the hearing? Just as the body is a single unit made of many complementary and interdependent components, so our spiritual relationship and responsibilities are complementary and interdependent. Faith alone is not going to save us. Grace alone will not save us. Knowledge alone will not save us. Works alone will not save us. Oversimplification is part of that broad path to perishing. Beware of those without as well as within our community who postulate that all we have to know is this, and all we have to do is that. The complex interdependent features of creation and kingdom law and the gospel of salvation and the human body all stand together as subtle but powerful witnesses against this instinctive, heart-induced, fleshly presumption of the minimalization of divine communication, laws, principles, that results in the fairly common expression that we're not under the law of Moses and don't have to pay any attention whatsoever to those laws and rituals to understand the terms of God's righteousness in our pursuit of salvation. So, we have a new reasoning platform to begin climbing again in our pursuit of an answer to why God changed the forgiveness ritual model from a bloody altar offering uh, repeated many times to a, the single ritual of baptism and then back again to that bloody altar offering that is repeated over and over. The next platform in our reasoning for an accurate, comprehensive answer will be to, to recognize how God shifts his educational emphasis in each progressive dispensation, each of these divinely appointed ages, as well as why he does this. Very significant part of our answer. Part of what we're, we're going to have to uh, understand is that not one of these fairly easily defined dispensations or divine ages are entirely comprehensive. They each serve as parts of the whole, They're not the entire puzzle, independently. 
Not one of them can be considered to be inconsequential or meaningless to the whole just because they are replaced with an entirely new spiritual service and educational structure when one age progresses into another. We've considered in, in earlier considerations how God defines and borders a dispensation, an age. A new age is defined by a change in the divinely appointed priesthood structure, a change in divine laws and rituals, and those changes are validated at each point by a powerful and very public outpouring of miraculous divine power for the purpose of silencing those who object to the transmission, transition and the dismissal of the previous structure and operation of divine laws. On the basis of these three age-bordering identifications, uh, we can see four divinely appointed dispensations. These are the Patriarchal Age, the First Kingdom Age, the Ecclesial Age, and of course the approaching Millennial Kingdom Age. We are the last generation of the Ecclesial Age. We are one of those four very unique transitional generations, bridging one divinely appointed age to another. What we do need to recognize is that each of these divine dispensations have a very specific educational focus within which the enlightened are developed with the hopeful intention of qualifying us as the immortal saints, which will be determined at the beginning of the seventh millennium, and then lastly at the beginning of the eighth millennium. We've noted in the past the educational focus of the First Kingdom Age. This was transgressional sin. But we do not have time left to prove the educational focus of the other three divine dispensations. Um, so we will consider that in our, in our next uh, class. And at this point, this was for your meditational exercises uh, over the next two weeks until we have the opportunity to meet again on Thursday evening, December 3rd. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt f at cdvideo.org. If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen.